Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, everything, everything. Have you got it yet, James? It's everything. Absolutely everything. Everything has its own history, like art, shoes and tents. Or Cajun, Wajun, which is about <laughs> gambling, and Contagion, which is all about the coronavirus. Or Jin, Sin and Finn, which is all about sharks and Nordic <laughs> history. Finn. <laughs> Finn, yes, Finns. Um, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, exploring and explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of poison is all about vendetta, Roman women, misogyny, Viking prophetesses and a mad woman from Highgate. <laughs> or that the history of lions is all about sinking warships, the Thirty Years' War, American populism in the 1900s and rubbish dumps. And the Vassa. And the Vassa, nice. Well, uh, Gustavus Adolphus. Yes, yes, yes. Lion of the North. The man sitting opposite me is the beetle of history. <laughs> Beetles around, collecting things. Uh, it's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Well, I do see myself like a sort of Charles Darwin like, uh. figure. Uh, I don't really at all. Uh, the man sitting opposite me is the Louis Pasteur of the medical past. Is the famous historical adventurer, truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. How are you today, Sam? Very good, thank you. I'm are you a, in fine fettle? I really am, actually. I, good. I woke up very, very early. I suspect Darwin was an early riser. I suspect he was. I went out to a brilliant lecture last night with my friend Jeffers. Mm. Uh, uh, we had a tremendous time, but I got back very late. So oh, I've had okay. six hours sleep. Not enough. Well, not, not enough. Not enough, but you're, you're, you, look, you look good to go. I'm um, radiant. We are um, doing a, a second episode of our Darwin podcast because we both enjoyed it so much, our first one. We didn't finish what we were going to talk about. No. Nor did we even introduce the um, the truly wonderful interview which we had with um, the librarian at Shrewsbury School. Dr Robin Brooksmith. Exactly, who, who cares for many of the wonderful Darwin, um, Darwinalia, Darwininia, what is it? Darwin, Darwinana. Darwiniana. Darwiniana, I can't say it, which is kept at Shrewsbury School. Um, In the Taylor Library, which is Taylor a fantastic library. Uh, 17th century library. Amazing library. They have all sorts of his correspondence there. They've got uh, first editions of Origin of Species. They've got all sorts of personal documents that have come to them. They are putting on an exhibition in the coming months. That's right. So um, check and that out. We worked out that actually the history of Darwin is all about apologies, homes, bees, shame, uh, doodling, anticipating death, letters. Studies. Studies, all sorts of things. And, uh, pillboxes. We've all got a bit over carried away, really. So we're carrying on because there's more to Darwin uh, we want to talk about and we really want you guys to listen to this interview because it's really good fun. Um, so... Yeah, well, shall I, shall I carry on, James? You carry on. Yeah. Um, so we've just uh, finished talking about doodling in the previous one. And the next thing I thought was fascinating um, was a book which was read to Darwin's children. Mm. Mm. Remember seeing that? Um, and I do, now that you mention it. Yeah. And it made me think about the whole setup of Darwin's home life. Um, his own relationship with his children, which must have been a fascinating one for someone who's a professional scientist interested in the history of evolution. Um, and 
he, he does constantly write about his kids. And he, he does kind of study them as well as, as well as be a dad. He was, an un, for a Victorian man, I think he was unusually connected with his kids and unusually interested in what they were doing, but he was certainly fascinated by them as objects as and well. The interesting thing is, because Darwin's workplace was his home, you know, he has to interact with children because they're there. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of contact, which means that he has that sort of you know, close proximity and perspective on them. Oh, that's interesting. So but there's, I, there's I a working from home aspect to Darwin. There's a working Darwin. from home aspect. You find this with many with many clergymen as well, who, you know, they administer to their flock, but they are around the household a lot. And so you can actually... And they're the kinds of people... Historically, they're the kinds of people who leave diaries. They leave written material. And so you, they're a really good way into looking at family life, albeit through a refracted religious lens yeah um but it but yeah fascinating and i imagine my sense of darwin is yes there there is that but within tension there is also uh somebody who as somebody who works at home you know from time to time there is the need to police your workspace and it's lovely having family around but also you need to get down and you know and work one of the great things i think about uh, well, as a topic for understanding Darwin, you think he went unexpected history of Darwin is also his relationship with his wife, who was also his first cousin. Huh. Uh, which is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, do you know of any other first cousin marriages off the top of your head? Not off the top Henry of VIII married his first cousin. Oh. Yeah. Catherine of Aragon. Oh. Very interesting. Um, also his brother's wife. And, uh, cool, he got that wrong. And Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Now, so there are two aspects to this. The first is how you're allowed, and are you allowed to do it? And you are in the Christian church, but you have to have special dispensation to do it. So Darwin's marriage is actually a chapter in a much broader history of dispensations, which are fascinating. They yeah. absolutely yeah. are extraordinary. So that's when um, the church establishes laws and rules and then says, actually, in your case, it's kind of OK. Uh, most famously, um, of course, was Henry VIII, uh, because he was allowed to, to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, but then wasn't allowed another dispensation, which is what he wanted, to, to marry Anne Boleyn. That's just one example of it. But it's, um, I think, the idea of of the church having rules and then bending them throughout history. And if you go and look at that, you can see um, all sorts of interesting uh, political influences, religious influences, and actually how and why these rules were being bent and, and, um, and were made in the first place. Particularly interesting, I think, is that he, he gets a bit vexed about marrying Emma, about marrying his wife. And remember you told me about a list of a Tudor person yes. once who yes. made a list of... She was trying to decide whether to marry someone. Yes. We have done a podcast on list. It was one of my yes. favourite ones. Do have a look yeah, at yeah. this. Darwin's done something similar. So when he was trying to decide um, how to do something, it's just made me think. I wonder whether this making of a list, pros and cons, was something that happened in the past that people were advised upon, and that's how you were taught how to make decisions. You make a list, and you go cons on one side and pros on the other side. I've never done it, but it's curious that we've found two in history now of people doing it for marriage. I wonder if that was a kind of a common advice thing. So um, he has literally got uh, two scraps of paper um, and one of them has a column for marry and the other has a column for not marry. Um, and the advantages under marry included constant companion and a friend in old age. Better than a dog anyhow. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Interesting, knowing that Darwin did have a dog. We mentioned Polly. <laughs> Polly, his, his dog, male dog. Um, but he does decide in favour of marriage and ends up marrying her. Lucky uh, Emma. A lucky Emma. <laughs> <laughs> Emma. But he does so against his father's advice. Um, his father was a scientist as well. And so it, not only is he marrying his cousin, but he's a scientist, an expert on evolution, um, who's marrying his own cousin, which means that later in life he's he gets very obsessive about it, particularly he gets wound up about his kids when they get ill mm. because he thinks what's happening is that um, 
there's some kind of inherited weakness from inbreeding caused by the marriage, uh, which I think is fascinating. And he goes he goes on to study inbreeding as well, um, and contrasting it with advantages and uh, of out outcrossing in many in many species. Mm. Uh, and it's not just Charles who becomes interested in this. Um, so in 1875, someone does a study of inbreeding, uh, of or particularly of people marrying their first cousins. Um, and it turns out to be 3.5% for the middle classes in Victorian England. Quite a lot. Mm, that's what it, yeah. um, and 4.5% for the nobility. Um, though it then declines to under 1% during the 20th century. So the headline fact there is that in sort of the 1870s, 3.5% of the middle classes are marrying their first cousins. And do you know who did the study? Charles Darwin. George Darwin. George Darwin. Charles's son. <laughs> right. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> his second son and his fifth child. So mm. it wasn't just Charles who was uh, interested in what was going on, but uh, surprisingly, it was his children who realised that his, his mum and dad are cousins. I like that. Um, so great history there of um, dispensation and um, intermarriage. Excellent. Excellent. Now, I want to go back to uh, his house. Yeah. Um, and we were talking in the last episode about this brilliant project, uh, which is the Darwin Project. And they it's based on over 15,000 examples of his correspondence, super, super detailed about all of that. They've recreated his study. They have also recreated the garden. And there's a little interactive map here that I'll show you. Darwin's Garden at Downhouse Kent. So this is the darwinproject.ac.uk. Have a Google and look for his Darwin's Garden. There is a, there's the house here, uh, and we can see there he's got his study, which you can explore. There is the weed garden. So he did all sorts of uh, experiments with, with weeds, looking at seedlings and, and plant competition and pests and weather conditions and all of that kind of thing. Um, he, we then also have, let me see, where are we? We then also have his greenhouses and the greenhouses are still intact today. He had a greenhouse built uh, in the kitchen garden uh, in the in winter of 15, 1855 to 56. Um, there's a hot house next to it. So he does all his uh, experiments in there. Um, and then there is a the sand walk. So the sand walk is a, a sort of a, a, an area of path lined by trees where he would take his sort of constitutional walk. He walked along it for uh, 40 years. So it's a countryside walk. So you get the sense of him um, yeah, going out and I love that idea of someone doing the same thing again and again and again, and you get to 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 re-experience that. And it's, in, and it's into in it, and there it's about the history of routine and the history of exercise ah, and routine. I like ghosts yes. in landscapes as well, but routine is fascinating, routine is brilliant. And but here is what I'm what I wanted to get at. This is his wormstone. That's not a thing. It is a thing. Was Dar a wormstone? Darwin was obsessed with. Worms. Okay. So he studied worms for about forty years. <laughs> he, did, he did. He did. He did. And he produced a book. His last book in eighteen eighty one was called "The Formation of Vegetable Mould Through the Actions of Worms," and he writes about this this worm uh, this worm uh, stone in a letter to his niece Lucy Wedgwood. Uh, he's related to Wedgwood Pottery. Yeah, very. It's basically um, a very powerful, significant yes, family, the Darwin-Wedgwood yes, family. Yes. Uh, 5th of January, 1872. My dear Lucy, supposing that you have leisure during the next two or three weeks, will you have a try with straight, blunt knitting needle to ascertain whether, on steep slopes, the worms come to surface at nearly right angles to the slope or at nearly right angles to the horizon? So he's fascinated by by earthworms, makes this sort of big study of them. And the wormstone was developed by his son Horace to measure the movement of earth during the activity of worms beneath it. Imagine his house, imagine isn't that, being brought that, up uh, there. The subsidence of the stone over time relative to the top of the metal bars was measured by a wormograph. Yeah, of course it was. Uh, constructed by <laughs> Horace in 1870. Uh, but he he is absolutely obsessed 
with this. And he calculated in his book that there were 53,767 earthworms recycling the earth in every acre of land. Uh, and he carried out all sorts of, you know, worm-related experiments. Um, he writes this book uh, about them, um, and he's interested in their behaviour, so the pleasure of eating, uh, their sexual passions, um, the way in which they they um, dread light, uh, their social feelings, crawling over, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's bodies, foraging. Uh, dragging leaves into their burrows, all this sort of thing. Um, um, the way in which they 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 move, um, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, it's a bit like a little bit like your sort of beetle. Uh, it is sort of interest. But it does, you know, we we did mention the beetle thing and the worm thing, but just more broadly here, what we've got is it is a chapter in in a broader history of animals, but. Um, you know the cultural, social, social and cultural history of animals, and how humans interact with animals, how they study them, how they think about them, and how you know humans share their lives with animals. It's an absolutely fascinating, huge area of history. So you can do the history of sharks, or you can do the history of worms, or you can do the history of bees. Um, and it's not just about science; it's the history of science, but it's also um, there's a much broader and fascinating cultural history of it. Yeah, animals, I love. I'd like to do more animals. We're doing rabbits, aren't we? We are going to do rabbits. Yes, uh, um, definitely. Very good. Um, and finally, I just want to talk about um, one more thing. So we were we were taking these thoughts um, from our little tour around the Darwin exhibition, which we are going to uh, play you any minute now. Uh, but one of them was wonderful. There was a, an, a the first edition copy of his of on the Origin of Species, yep. uh, which was owned by Richard Owen. Now, if you don't know who Richard Owen is, uh, that in itself is significant. He was uh, one of the greatest scientists uh, this country has ever produced, um, and he was a contemporary of Darwin and also one of Darwin's great rivals. Um, Darwin's theories on evolution were contested by Owen for many, many, many years indeed. And you can look at that in, in terms of a of an example of, of, of a history of, of, of very great rivalries. Um, rivalries are really interesting when you often have two powerful people, two powerful figures, and studying how and when they fell out, how that manifested itself in... in uh, a conflict in writing, what the records of it are. Um, you could do Da Vinci and Michelangelo, or Cato and Caesar, or Gladstone and Disraeli. There are, there are so many wonderful examples. Trotsky and Stalin's one of my favourite, when Stalin actually went through this entire process of, of trying to remove Trotsky from history by yep. <laughs> editing him out of photographs and everything. Yep. But often, by studying rivalry like this, you 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 it really helps you understand how history is made, yeah. basically, because you've got this editing process, you've got argument, you've got... Often the history is written by the victor of that rivalry. So the whole idea of history being written by the victors is, is extremely true in in this type of example. So Darwin and Owen are talking about evolution. Um, and what is interesting is how the rivalry comes to an end, because it does come to an end, and they find out that it's all based on a misunderstanding. <laughs> and they've been throwing mud at each other, um, all because of a an idea that Darwin had not... He definitely made a mistake, because he hadn't explained it properly, or um, Owen had assumed something about Darwin's point. And so what they were doing is they were actually arguing about something that sort of didn't really exist... Uh, which I think, I think is really, really fascinating. So um, there, there's, there's, a, there's an extraordinary window into the history of um, misunderstanding, argument, friendship um, and, and rivalry. Back to doodles as well, because in our last podcast on Darwin, we talked about the scribblings in his book. And this book that was given to Owen has his annotations in it. So you can see exactly what he, what passages he read and what he thought. So we should introduce the interview. Absolutely. Um, this is us, uh, well, it's me interviewing Dr Robin Brooks-Smith, the Taylor librarian and archivist at Shrewsbury School, who showed us around not only the new exhibition that is going to be opening on Darwin, uh, but also the Taylor Library. So we were looking at all sorts of treasures there. I hope you enjoy it, guys. 
Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a special segment of Histories of the Unexpected. I am here at the lovely Shrewsbury School where Sam and I spoke last night and we're in the Taylor Library with Robin Brooks-Smith, uh, who is the Taylor Librarian and Archivist of the School. And the reason that we are here is that we are here to look at some Charles Darwin manuscripts and original books. Robin, thank you for having us here. It's a pleasure to have you. So tell us about the, tell us about the collection here. Right, well, we are very fortunate at Shrewsbury to have a wonderful collection of Darwiniana. <coughs> um, the, perhaps the most significant part of it is the letters, Darwin's correspondence and letters, of which we've got a very significant collection. Um, not enormous, but um, covering some really interesting material. Letters of, Huck, of Huxley and to Huxley, Wallace... Um, to his school friends, um, to various other people, A. Gunter, for instance, who was the keeper of specimens at the Natural History right. Museum at the time of the Beagle um, voyage, plus lots of other stuff from his time as a schoolboy here. We're very honoured that, that a boy shows the school. This is music to my ear. The letters are music to my ears. I'm a scholar of, of correspondence, right. a Renaissance correspondence, so I'm absolutely very excited about that. But let's, we're, we're in the library, we're in uh, a room with some display cases, and do you want to talk us through the yeah. artefacts that we've got here? We've got yeah. here pages from Dr Butler's Atlas of Ancient Geography, right. covered in childish doodles. Well, we are actually in the process of setting up um, a, a themed ex exhibition for the Darwin Festival, which is held every year in Shrewsbury. Yes. Um, and we're going to have an open day and we're going to do a series of, of, of study tours uh, for the open to the public. This atlas is one of the most wonderful things because this was actually Darwin's school atlas, which he would use as a boy sitting in the classroom um, studying ancient geography, not modern geography. And one of Darwin's complaints about Shrewsbury School, which he, he said was absolutely hopeless for him, he learned absolutely nothing, was that the curriculum was mainly Latin, Greek, and a little bit of ancient geography, not much right. else. Um, so it didn't hold his attention? No, and age, goodness knows what, he, he might have been 10, 11, 12, something like that. There he was sitting in the classroom, staring out the window, and in the front and the back of his atlas are these wonderful doodles. And there he is dreaming and not paying attention to the teacher and he's practising his signature. You can see Darwin and he's, he's drawn a picture of a soldier yes. and over here there are two stick men fight, right. fighting and um, he's even... Uh, it looks like a love heart. It does. Uh, maybe, yes. maybe he was a lovelorn youth. Yes. Who knows? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, Away at school. But, but it brings out, here, here's, here's Darwin and, and a concrete thing about his childhood. Yes. Um, so juvenile scribblings in, yeah. and, and doodles yeah. and in he's, the back pages. It's very interesting because, you know, he, he claimed that uh, Shrewsbury School was no good for him and then he went to Edinburgh and that wasn't any good for him and he'd left there after a couple of years and then he was, his father sent him off to um, uh, Christ College, Cambridge. And he was going to become a clergyman. Right. <laughs> and, um, to read divinity. And, and, yeah, and, yes. and that wasn't much good for him. And he just scraped through with some sort of past degree. And yet he went on to write the most important scientific yes. book of the millennium. So, and then he went on the Beagle, Beagle voyage, yeah, which was yeah. a sort of transformational event probably in his early yes. life. Yes, yeah. Very, sort of set important. the course of yeah. his, his, yeah. his later career. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't seem to have fitted in at the school. Um, and he... he he strikes me as very much a sort of Gerald Durrell type in the My Family and <laughs> yes, Other Animals, yes, sort yes, of, yes, you know, yes. spending a lot of his, his home, home life, you know, rummaging well, around the backyard and into right. the woods and finding things and was much more interested in that sort of, sort of self-determined experimentation. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Than formal I, I studies. wouldn't say he didn't fit in. In, in. in many ways, he did fit in because he turned up to his classes. Um, he w went through the school achieving a sort of average normal yes. but he would run off home because he was he he, he was he lived his father lived up on the mount in the right. big house and there he set up he and his brother set up a chemistry laboratory in the in the outhouses the stables right. where he made explosions and so on and at school he got a nickname as gas darwin because he, and, and why was that so well because he was interested in chemistry in, okay okay um, and his headmaster didn't approve of this um uh, and um He'd go on long walks. He was very absent-minded, but he 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 talks later in his life that one thing he was good at was observing and yes. remembering 
and drawing drawing um, conclusions out of yes. things. And uh, he used to say, some people have accused, much later in life, after he published The Origin of Species, he said, some people say that I'm, I'm, I'm just merely a collector and, and, a, and a chronicler, you know, or making lists. But he said, actually, The Origin of Species um, uh, carries an argument that I, that I sustain from beginning to end on the basis of what I have observed and put together, see. So he, he must have learned something. Yes. We don't yes. Know what? Yes. But this was a, this was a time when when a public school like this would be it would be a classical curriculum, and yes. so he wouldn't yep. have he wouldn't have found exactly what he was interested in here at no, the school. No, exactly. And, it, and there was no space. There was. I've got a quote here which you might be interested yes. in. So we're moving um, we're moving along well, past a well, range of things. Th this first section of the yes. display is about Darwin's school life, and for instance, here is the 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 calling over list of 1817. And what would a calling um, calling over well, list be? Well, every morning they would call over okay. names to make... So a re it was, like a register, it was a register, day yeah. register. And here is the school list for midsummer 1820 in Dr. Butler's hand, who's his headmaster. Yes. And Darwin's name is near the bottom in the lower fourth. And I've put an arrow there, and you can just, if you look carefully, it's C. Darwin. So this is in hierarchical order of yes. academic performance. Academic form. Well, progression through progression the school. Progression through the school. You know, yes. the third form is the bottom. He's yep. in the lower yep. fourth, and he progresses steadily through the school. Yes. He's, he's not a disgrace, but he is, he's not a high flyer. No. He's just an ordinary, functioning pupil. Yes. Um, so if members of the public wanted to come along and see this exhibition that you're putting together, how would they get in touch with you? Well, it's already completely booked. It's already completely booked. <laughs> <laughs> Almost straight away, but we're thinking of doing a, a second one. Excellent. But it, it's done through um, uh, Eventbrite. And, okay, and it's, okay. It's on, if, if you Google online to... Um, Google Shrewsbury School. Well, Google the Darwin, Shrewsbury yeah. Darwin Festival. Right, yeah, yeah. right. I think the one or two places maybe. Excellent. Um, but going through, here's the register. Here's a th there's a thing here about him having paid his fee, the nine shillings and eleven pence or whatever it was. Um, Charles Darwin, son of Dr. Darwin of Shrewsbury, nine shillings, eleven pence. That's right, yes, yes. Um, but what I was going to say was, I love this quote. Um, uh, he, we are told that they taught us nothing at Eton. This is actually uh, by Lord Palmer, who's at Eton. We are told that they taught us nothing at Eton, which has the same sort of curriculum as Shrewsbury. Yes. It may be so, but I think they taught it very well. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a lovely comment. I'm beginning, this isn't complete, but I'm beginning to draw out a few of Darwin's observations about himself. Yes. Um, he said, my father once said to me, you care nothing but, but, but you care for nothing but shooting dogs and rat catching, and you will be a disgrace to yourself and your family. <laughs> That's, See, that, that's what made me think of Jerry Darrell when I, yes, when, yes, I when I read yes. that. I imagined him sort of Actually, poodling around. I hadn't thought about that, but Jerry Darrell is quite a good one. Yes. Um, and here we are, what I've just been saying. When I left school, I was for my age neither high nor low in it, and I believe that I was considered by all my masters and by my father as a very ordinary boy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Um, and there's a sort of thread, thread of that that goes through his life, but he had a sort of wry sense of humour about life and himself, I think. Yes. Um, and you've got some first editions yes, of his work yes. as well. We're coming to that. Yes. Do you want to come to that now? Yes. Here, um, look at this. It, we've got two first editions, and, and I believe we're probably the only place in the world to have one, have two. Um, and this is, is rather extraordinary. And I, I th if we have a moment, I'll unlock this and I get yes. the key and show it to you. Oh, this is a inscribed, this is Darwin's hand in the front. And yep. it is inscribed as a presentation copy to Richard Owen, Sir Richard Owen, his great opponent. Right. Which he sent to Richard Owen. And um, they were friends, were they? Well, they were then. Until... And, and after that, they didn't speak for the next 20 <laughs> years because Owen did not really approve of Darwin and Darwin's approach. And this was Owen's own copy. And in the back, in, by hand, are Owen's oh, marginal notes. notes. I'm right, right up your street. Um, oh, super. And um, there are things like page 125, rattlesnakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pointing to rattlesnakes rather than saying, rather than as well, an expletive it, it, it's about just, it. Just notes in his hand. You right. See. Critical notes? Uh, no, just notes. Just, just notes. Page such and such. Right, you, you right. Know. But it shows um, that he's gone through it with great detail, looking at the argument but in order to... Yes, exactly. Yes. Before Darwin uh, sent this inscribed copy, you know, it's like a sort of presentation copy. Yes. Here you are, this is a gift for your life. Um, and it's dated as well. It's dated, yes. In, November, in, in Owen's hand. Just after it's yep. published. 1850, 15th of November, 1859. Just after, yes. just after it's and published. Then, and then another one presented to Shrewsbury School by... Is it a. A. Gunter. Gunter. Now, there's a story attached to that, actually, because before he gave Owen this book, he actually sent him an abstract of The Origin of Species after he'd finished writing it. He mm. went off the Isle of Wight and just wrote like mad because Wallace was, going to was about to publish. Um, and we have a letter, which I'll show you in a minute over there. Um, this was to Richard Owen on the 11th of November, which was just before the 15th when he signed this mm. book. And he said, I've asked Mr. Murray, my publisher, Murray's, to send you a copy, as yet only an abstract. So in other words, the copy's on its way, but I'm giving you an abstract of the origin of species. I fear that it will be abominable in your eyes, but I assure you that it, that it is the result of far more labour than is apparent on its face. If you honour me by reading it all, I beg you to read it straight through. Otherwise, from being much condensed, it will be unintelligible. And I love this bit. I fear that my meaning will not be clear to anyone without a considerable amount of reflection. Whether I be in the main part right, as I honestly think myself to be, or wholly wrong, the old saying of magna est veritas et prevalibit is a good conclusion. The truth is great, and it will prevail. Yes. So... He's learned something in his classical yes, education, yes, yes. <laughs> a little bit. Um, after that, they didn't correspond for the next 30 years. Yeah, are we going to be able to have a look at the, at the book as yes, well? I'm quite yes. excited about Can this. Yes, 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 of course. No, 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 of course. Just moving on, this is um, a statue that was made in the school um, in about 2002, I think it was. The first really up-to-date statue of Darwin as a young man with his bush hat, his geological hammer. There are Galapagos finches and yes. iguanas around his feet, and he's striding forth across, you know... And this sits on the main... It stands on the main drive. It is, yes. Yes. Uh, and we've got a few pictures of it being made. I've got lots more of those. And David Attenborough came to unveil it. Um, so... That's just a little, yes. little replica of it. Super. Right, moving okay, along. Moving yeah. along. There's a lot in this exhibition, isn't there? Yeah. But, but, um, it's only half set up. So right. Um, we've got lots oh, of his letters, the letters. here. Um, this so one, is this a letter book? This yeah, is a, been, it's, been it's been put, in, in. put in, a, in a book. Some of them are in envelopes, some are in yep. a book. Um, and this is a selection of his letters. And this is to a chap called um, uh, Whitley. Uh, who was a school friend of his, right. who went on to become a very uh, exalted mathematics professor at Durham mm. University. Uh, he said, I'm going to be married. The lady is my cousin, Mary, uh, uh, Miss Emma Wedgwood, and you will approve of marrying a cousin. And it goes on to say, we're going to be married, we're going to live in London, and so on and so forth. So through these, you're able to get at the private life exactly. of yes. Darwin, which yes. is fascinating. So what we've got here is a... It probably looks like a 19th century binding 
yes. or early 20th century early 20th binding century. of a series of, or a selection of, of Darwin's letters to a variety of, of people. Yes, yes. Um, how many letters does the school hold? Oh, gosh, you've asked me a question. Sorry, Sorry I'm not to put you on the quite spot. A, quite a few hundred, oh, I would God, say. Oh, so you know, significant. Uh, three, four hundred, I would think. Um, and we work, we've worked over many years with the Darwin Correspondence Project. The, the Cambridge-based Cambridge, project, Cambridge yes. Cambridge-based project. Yes. Uh, and I've, they've published about 15 volumes so far. Yes. We, we've contributed considerably to that. Um, those are a selection. These are to Albert Gunter. Ah, so we've actually got letters in envelopes here, yep. uh, postage paid. Which we're going to be um, bringing those out and displaying them. Right. I've just put them in there for the Beautiful. Wallace Huxley. Beautiful. Um, th this I like. Um, this is a chap called Lawson Tate, who was a Birmingham surgeon and a great admirer of Darwin. Um, and he, Darwin's got this very spidery sort of hand. Mm. Um, and towards, quite, quite tricky to write, read, isn't it? It is a bit, yes. But this is towards the end of his life, 1882, and he says, I feel a very old man. My course is nearly run. Uh, I remain your, yours sincerely. And he died two months later. Right. So um, we're trying to sort of put together a, a sort of story of his life uh, um, that kind of um, gets at who this personality was. What, yes. What, what was it that he was like at school? Um, and through his correspondence, get a flavour of of Darwin, the man. Yes. Um, yes. And behind that are the are the controversies, you know, the Richard Owen yeah. situation, yep. um, and of course the whole. It, it hardly touches on the whole, you know, his great hesitation about publishing the work in the first place because mm. he realised what a what a, a, a seismic effect it was going to have. Uh, culturally, politically, spiritually, the whole thing was mm. enormous. Mm. And I, I, I often wonder to what extent he, he um, realised that the, the rumblings and the eruptions were going to carry on right into the 21st century, you know. And um, still today. And, and uh, yeah, I, I actually think that, I mean, I'm going to say something a bit controversial. No, no, we love controversy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think Darwinism... Darwinism, the, the, the whole range of Darwinism, the social Darwinism, so on, was, you know, it's been misused grossly, you know, particularly yes, in the yes, early 20th century yes, and the yes, rise of fascism, so on. Yes. But also by scientific materialism, that, that Darwinism has been used to, it seems to me, artificially drive a wedge between religion and science, which yes. is not, yes, it's not. Sh shouldn't be there really, you know. And, and, um, and with his religious training as well, wasn't something that was part of. Yes, yes. Part of his initial no, exactly. sort of ideas. And of course, we do hardly touch on the, you know, the difference between him and Emma, who was a, yes. a, a, a believing Christian. Mm. Um, we have, um, of course, we have an Emma Darwin Hall here now in honour right. of his, his wife. Um, oh, oh uh, over there, you see that, um, the Pan Pipes? Yes. The children's book? Yes. That was... Was this his? That belonged to Emma Darwin and oh, would have been read so to his, his children. The Man with the Pan Pipes. Gosh. Uh, Emma Darwin's personal copy. Is it signed by her? No. Inside, no. but we... It was given to us by... It has provenance. Another A. Yes. Gunter. Right. This is an interesting thing. A. Gunter, who was the keeper of um, specimens at the Natural History Museum, he was a German, he came over and he... he when Darwin got back from his Beagle voyage, mm. um, uh, they became very good friends. Yes. Of course, Darwin would stop at Rio de Janeiro and all over the world and crate up the starfish and the whatever he'd found, butterflies and beetles and so on, ship them back mm. to the Natural mm. History Museum. Mm. And it was Gunter who was classifying them, pickling them and whatever they do. And when he got back, they became very good friends and Gunter would visit him for the weekend at, at, um, at uh, his house, what's it called, yes. um, in Kent. Um, I forgot the name of his house. Anyway, um, they were very good friends. A lot of the letters have been given to us by another A.E. Gunter, which I think is Gunter's grandson, mm. who he sent to Shrewsbury School. Right. So Gunter, so the German, it? sent his son to in honour of... Many connections. In honour of his, his great mentor, Darwin. Um, what else shall I show you? Shall we still... Oh, um, th this is quite interesting. Yes. This um, is a medal that was, you'll be amused by this, was struck by the, um, the, the uh, what do they call themselves? The Russian Academy of Sciences. The Russian Academy of Sciences, or the USSR, in 1959, 
to mark the centenary of the publication of The Origin of Species. So the Soviet communists yes. were, were, had got hold of Darwin. And I just like the fact that the, the letter in which it was sent doesn't say, Dear Headmaster, it says, Highly esteemed Mr. Mr. Director. Director. <laughs> <laughs> the organising committee planning the Jubilee of Charles Darwin asks you to accept as a gift the enclosed medal struck by order of the President of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the birth and the 100th anniversary of the publication of The Origin of Species of the brilliant English naturalist Charles Darwin. That's right, yes. yes. Signed E.H. Pavlovsky. Chairman of the Jubilee Committee of the Academy. Yeah, That's yeah. a wonderful medal, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm still in communication with uh, people in Russia who wanted pictures of this. They still know it's here because the foundry, which cast it, is still going strong apparently, oh. and they wanted uh, information. Another medal was struck by the Linnaean Society. Um, that smaller one there, uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the papers of Darwin and Wallace. Yeah. The Tendency of Species to Form Varieties, 1858. Right. And that's, that was the paper that really um, forced Darwin to yes. write his book, really. So we've moved through the library now into the rare books and manuscripts part of the Taylor Library. You can just... As, you, as we walked in, you said we can smell well, the, the 17th, 17th century. century. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we've, we've walked past Oliver Cromwell's death mask. We've seen... First edition of John Donne's poetry. We've seen a uh, first edition of a letter to uh, Philip Sidney from his father. Yeah, that's right. Wonderful things. Wonderful things. Yeah, real treasures. Um, just, just quickly, this this is the library, uh, the school library, which is over four hundred years old. It's nearly old, as old as the school. These piers with all these great books in, um, many of them come from the old school, and Charles Darwin would have taken books off these shelves. Right if he ever got round to reading books, yes. which he wasn't yes. that keen on. But these are the original, you know, some of these originals from the old school. And you were telling me an anecdote earlier on about uh, a brother of Napoleon. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, there are all sorts of wonderful books in here, extremely rare books, and scholars from all over the world are interested in coming here. Uh, but by accident, but well, by chance, I took a book off the shelf to dust it and opened the front, and it said, um, in 15, uh, 1813, this book was borrowed by Napoleon Bonaparte's brother. And look at the lending book, page such and such, and lo and behold, there it was, borrowed by... He fled the French Revolution right. and settled in Shropshire and borrowed books from here. Yes. Right. So how would you, how would you categorise the collection that you've got here? What sort of volumes have you got? I'm, I'm looking, looking well, here. We've got, we've got a series of... of of sort of innate wooden bookshelves with um, these are 17th century bindings on them. Oh, some of them are older than that. Some of them are older. Um, but the, this they, one, for they example, vary. here, the vellum. Yes, they vary. I mean, these here are Bibles and theological works, Psalms. This here, all these volumes are a polyglot Bible. Yes. And we got two very rare polyglot Bibles. That is the single Bible. And on, on each page, it has the Bible in seven or eight languages. Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Arabic, Samaritan, Chaldean, you name it. So these are really scholarly works scholarly where, works. where, where yeah. biblical scholars would piece together different variants of yeah. Yeah. the Bible. But the question is, you know, what is the flavour of this library? Uh, there's a I'm lot just of... going to interrupt Sam here. Um, he's Hello, Sam. Coming to your microphone. He is here. There are seven examples, more than any other library, of the Cambridge 15th century binder known as the Unicorn Binder. One of these bindings has five stamps that are not found on any other binding. Yeah. So incredibly rare stuff. I'm Very now going to carry stuff. on looking right. at <laughs> Yes, you, you, you head well, off, I mean, Sam. Uh, we're touching the tip of an iceberg. Yes. We could spend all day talking about that. We have collections of rare bindings of, of unique importance because Basil Oldham, that gentleman yes. there... Who, who taught at the school and was a housemaster at school, was also my predecessor as librarian here for 50 years. And he spent his awesome. life researching early English bookbinding. And to right. this day, he's regarded as the founder and the great figure of the study of early English bookbinding. He, he invented the names. He, he, he created the classification. He went up and down the country. He did, he did rubbings of all these wonderful... Um, uh, leather bindings from early English days. So that's just one little corner yes. of, of the library. And one of the interesting <laughs> things that you were talking to us about earlier on is the amount of marginalia in these volumes, that it's one of the biggest concentrations in probably the country for 
marginalia. Well, I wouldn't say concentrations, but all I'm saying is there are plenty of marginalia right. of all sorts in, in books. And also, we in a lot of these books, in the bindings, you find they, they are pieced together with binder's waste. Yes. And yep. the so binder's waste, yes. uh, we, we found... Um, all sorts of remarkable medieval manuscript. It was just used as waste. It was lying around yes. on the printer's floor. Yes. We've got a copy of Caxton's The Laws of Chess, for instance. Right. Just a couple of scraps of, of Scrap paper. Scrap paper yeah. used to bind a book. Uh, it's from, uh, we've, we've got a, a lovely Caxton volume, the uh, um, Confessio Amantis. Um, but just to give you a thing, we've got, we've got Bibles and theology, we've got church history, we've got masses of classics, um, uh, Going around to the end here, we've got a remarkable medical collection. Two medical practitioners in the town in the 17th century were old Slopians. Right. They were physicians in those days. They were called the GP now. And remarkable collection of books on and the And bequeathed their collections Be bequeathed to, the, their to, the collection to the school. So, so, so is the rump of it, it's people who've donated, but also at the heart of it is the, is the working library for the school. Yeah, it's yes. both of those things. And a, a vast amount of wonderful benefactions. And one of the unique things about this library is that we have a, a chronicle of the earliest um, catalogues, vellum, parchment scrolls, from 1606 through the, through the, right through the 17th century into the 18th century and up to the 19th century. So we can see how the library developed as a, a unique whole. We've also got a benefactor's book, which records all the benefactors from 1596 through to about 1760, thereabouts. So we've got this wonderful bibliographical yes. record. And a lot of... Uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges say to me they'd give their right arm to have that sort I of record. I bet they would. Yeah. I bet they would. Um, so anyone interested in book history, this is a great place for them to, yeah, yeah. to come and research. Um, just to give you the history, though, it's called the Taylor Library because John Taylor, who was an old Slopian, he, lived in, he was a boy who lived in the town, went to Cambridge, became a classical scholar, became professor of classics at Cambridge. His nickname was Demosthenes Taylor. He also became librarian of Cambridge University, and he was a lifelong collector of books, rare books. And when he died, he bequeathed his whole collection to us. Um, and so about three, th th this, these peers here, about 3,000 books were bequeathed in 1766 yes. to Shrewsbury School. And amongst Taylor's books are a lot of the, uh, the rarest and most wonderful items here. We've been very, very fortunate in the way. Terrific. And there's a big question about why on earth has a school like Shrewsbury School got 80 Incan Avila? What, what have they got to do with the curriculum? Yes. Why on earth has Shrewsbury School got 60 or 70 medieval manuscripts? What have they got to do? Uh, they aren't, no one knows the answer to that. No. But probably, probably in, the, in the 16th and 17th century, it was just considered those are the sort of things that a gentleman would yes. have in yes, their lap. Absolutely. Possibly. Absolutely. I, I have no idea what absolutely. They, they Before we finish up, Sam back here again. I found a, a third century Greek urn, but oh. also come here. Okay. <laughs> Beckoning to us very excitedly oh, what here. Have got here. What have you found? I don't know, James. Have a look in this cabinet because it's full of, of magical things. Oh, I can show you even better ones oh. than that. Just take oh, the black cloth. Oh my word! Take it's the black cloth off here, look. If you can, you just take that off. This is part of the oh, Oldham book, look at this. rare bookbinding collection, oh. of which this is just a, a small sample. I mean, for instance, here we have. Um, this is from the library of Emperor Rudolf II of Austria, 1576, with his coat of arms on. So before us is a display case with with almost a, over a dozen beautifully chiselled, finished off Crafted. leather leather books with gold. From the time when the plate, book was a work of art. Yes. You know? And th this is mother of pearl. This is a tapestry type thing. Uh, these are uh, various um, calf leather. I think this will probably be deer, um, a deer, deer skin maybe, um, that some of them made with pig skin, um, and they're beautifully uh, tooled. Um, An early English prayer book with a clasp yeah. on it. This is uh, English, English binding from the reign of Charles II. Look how detailed that is. Gosh, this is. And, and a 20th century what a, look. What a delight. Um, English binding, 50, 1957 by Roger Powell, quite a famous printer. Very good. Well, thank you so much for 
showing us around the treasures at the Taylor Library. I'm very excited. I could I can spend see... hours here. Yes, I think we could. Well, you, I tell people I'm a bit like a schoolboy in a sweet shop. We could go on and on. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a book there that is the size of a box of matches, yes. I think, is the only way I could describe it. It's just so cool. Very good. Thank you so much for your time. Well, one of the things we've got, in, I mean, I haven't even shown it, the strong room. Very few people get to see the strong room, but there's some wonderful things in there. And one is a miniature Quran from probably 14th century Syria, Goodness me. which was worn as an amulet, as a sort of devotional thing. Yes. And I had a lady from Pakistan in here, and she almost went on her knees and, and kissed it because she thought it was a wonderful thing, you know. So. Goodness me. Thank you so much for showing us round. No, it's a pleasure. Well, that was absolutely superb. I can't imagine a more fascinating person to spend a morning with no, than, it than would, Robin Brooksmith. Yes, and, um, and that library will, I think, live with me forever. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I, the smell of it, the smell of those old books yes. as we walk through. And Oliver Cromwell's death mask. Yes. Oh, yep. Brilliant. Wonderful. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed that, guys, our two-parter on Darwin. Thank you all for listening, and a big shout-out to Sam Gaskill. I'm so glad that you enjoy the podcast, and these two have been recorded specially for you. Oh, well done. Yes. Um, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, if there's one thing you can do to help us in our mission to change the way people think about the past, it's leave a review on iTunes. It really does make a huge distance difference. Sorry, And a you, distance. And a distance. Yes. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm on at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell. And the... Uh, podcast is on at unexpected pod um check out histories of the unexpected.com for our tour we're on tour all over the place with two shows our main general show multi-periods absolutely fascinating and our tudors specific show we're going to theaters we're going to churches we're going to castles we're going to palaces we're going to lots of schools if you're a school teacher get in touch we'd love to come and chat to your students um do that please and also if you'd like to help please get um have a look at us on patreon dot com forward slash histories of the unexpected we're raising money to be able to record our podcasts in a recording studio get some decent equipment rather than doing it in my cold dirty spidery noisy shed when i'm fed up with it <laughs> and we're now in my cramped study <laughs> yeah. uh, which is very very it's tiny it's very messy it's a tiny it's a little mixture of messy and not... um i tell you what we'll take a photo and post it online it's uber organized as well the, the books are alphabetized <laughs> yeah. <laughs> alphabetized and they are organized thematically but it is it's a chaos of things and all our show props are also in here which is why it's so chaotic it is so, it's mad a bit like the contents of our heads uh we've enjoyed talking to you i hope you've ah, enjoyed but, listening but lit oh, but, but there are don't go but we do have uh we we have little we have uh mascots the clangers <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that do you like that we Yes, very yeah. good. So they, they keep noise. me company while I write. <laughs> uh, so that's little blue clanger and there's little pink clanger. Mm. Um, so anyway, we digress. Well, thank you all for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.